listener production. Shane Jenick was raised in Brisbane by loving parents and realised at a young age that he, and I quote, wasn't like the other boys. High school got tricky for Shane and in writing his new memoir, he realises just how much that teenager needed a hug. Performing arts school came next and then around the turn of the millennia, Shane dressed up in drag for the first time and Courtney Act was born. One of the fittest looking lady boys I've ever seen. Thank you. I mean, you were a great looking lad as well. Look, if you got straight... Yeah, with the great bone structure. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you were... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have to say, Shane only just didn't cut it. Okay. You've added another dimension yeah. and you've blown us away. Courtney sang her way onto Australian television screens on the first series of Australian Idol and has since won global hearts on RuPaul's Drag Race and Celebrity Big Brother UK. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Courtney! My name is Jamila Risby and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Soon I'm going to be joined by Linda Mariano from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club for The Weekend List. We will recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first... Here is my conversation with Shane Jenick, a.k.a. Courtney Act, who joins me for a conversation about gender, sexuality, identity, politics, and, of course, reality TV. Shane Jenick, a.k.a. Courtney Act, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. I am such a massive fan, so I'm really excited to have you today. Thanks for having me. I have heard you talk about your first time in drag before, and I imagine you've been asked about it, I don't know, a few hundred dozen times. Yeah. (laughs) So let me ask you about something else. Let me ask you about the second time in drag, because I imagine that's where the accident or the novelty or the serendipity has gone and the intention is there. Well, it was shortly thereafter. It was New Year's Day. I'd flown back to Sydney and there was a party on that night called Frisky mm. at the Metro on George Street. And and that was, to be fair, that was probably like more the, the real first time because the first time my makeup got done by someone at the Napoleon shop and <laughs> they weren't, it was the year 2000. Drag makeup was not a thing. The Kardashians didn't exist, well, they existed, but not like they do now. I feel like Napoleon makeup is synonymous with the year 2000 as well. Exactly. Yeah. And, but they just didn't quite know how to do drag makeup. So then the next day when I flew back to Sydney, my best friend Vanity, well, my now best friend Vanity at the time, I think I was like, maybe like an annoying insect to her. (laughs) And she was like the supermodel of Sydney drag. And she was a stunning and a makeup artist and an amazing wig stylist. And she put me in drag and we went out for the first time as sisters. And that was probably more pivotal because I didn't have to wear sunglasses all night because I looked good. (laughs) I didn't have to hide my face. I didn't have to hide my face. And also like whatever the wig that I was wearing, it was like a bob, like maybe a, what's that? Below the jaw, above the shoulder. Yeah, like a lob. Isn't that what they're called? Is that a lob? Isn't that the thing? Maybe. I don't know. I think I've embarrassed myself now. No, it's all right. Uh, a lob, which was sort of like falling on my face the night before. And Vanity just took like two pieces of it, twisted it back, popped a couple of bobby pins in it, and it was all off my face. And um, yeah, we had a very fun time 
Did you feel like you were performing as a character on that occasion or did you feel like this was just a different part of you? It was kind of a liberating feeling, I think, because I was being read, I guess, as if not a woman, definitely as a femme or someone feminine as opposed to a Twinkie boy, I was in like two blue, I got them from Ice. Do you remember the shop Ice? I do. It was sort of like, it was like one step down from Supre. Yeah, which is, you know, no <laughs> not shade many to Supre. Steps up. They, it's not many steps up. In fact, you might have to dig to get to Ice. I was wearing a blue sequin, I think it was a boob tube and I wore two of them, one as a skirt and one as a top and like a pair of gold high heels. And I just remember like, having fun, like feeling like there weren't any rules or expectations, which is really interesting because as a boy I felt like there were all these rules because I had been socialised of what a man was supposed to be and how a boy was supposed to act. And even though there's probably more rules about how or just as many rules as how a woman is supposed to act, nobody ever taught me those. Yeah. So the minute I put on feminine drag, I felt like it was so freeing to be perceived as a girl because I didn't I didn't know that women were supposed to act a certain way so it's this weird like thing where I got to like break out of the box and just express femininity in in this liberated way even though I know for most girls that age there's like so many ideas about how you should look and how you should act and how you should dress. It's almost like being feminine without the trappings of misogyny because you hadn't been taught them. Totally. I hadn't been taught them for me. Yeah. I had grown up in the same misogynistic world that taught me to think and feel, you know, certain ways about women and femininity. But in that instance, I didn't know that any of them applied to me. And I think that's really an interesting like observation of it because when I'm in drag, right, I feel safer around, I'm using air quotes, like straight men than I would as a boy. If I was like a femme boy walking amongst a group of like straight blokes, I'd feel a bit like uneasy. But if I was in drag, I would feel safe because I wouldn't feel physically threatened from violence. But the thing that somebody pointed out to me is like, well, women feel unsafe in that situation because of sexual violence. And I was like, oh, see, I didn't grow up with that being a thing for me as a boy, I only grew up with feeling physically threatened. And so it's so fascinating that there's this, probably this whole other layer that I'm not aware of. I feel like for you, at least, drag has given you this ability to step back from gender, from feminism, from misogyny, and look at how the world is constructed around you with a vantage point that most people don't get. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think I wouldn't pretend to understand the experience of being a woman, but I do understand the experience of being perceived by a woman socially in certain situations. And so seeing the way men and women, but particularly straight men, treat me when I'm in drag or out of drag is fascinating. And I definitely, you know, there's a whole other side of doing drag that There's a lot of shame that comes with the idea of being a boy who's feminine. Even though when you're in drag, you love it and you feel liberated, you sort of feel shamed that you did it in the first place. And so you've got to unpack that as well. So it's, I don't think you ever get to just take off all of the shame or all of the impositions, but you do have ways to deconstruct them and understand them differently. I think the first time I came across you as a performer was on the first season of Australian Idol, which for the younger listeners 
was the single biggest show ever when I was a teenager. And I remember the build-up and the laser focus of everyone on that competition. It was the only thing anyone at school was talking about. My parents would sit down and watch it with my sister and I. Like it was an event. Mm. How did you make the decision to compete as Shane or as Courtney? The TV auditions actually happen second. There's like a producer audition that happens first. It was like at the University of Sydney or University of New South Wales, one of those. It was just like a big university campus with thousands of people. Went on the first day as Shane, got through, got through that one, unlike the television. Went back the next day as Courtney, got through. And I was like, yes, this is genius. Then on the TV version, went along as Shane, didn't get through. And I was like, no, I meant to be here. And I was like, oh, that's right, I'm coming back tomorrow. Got back the next day as Courtney and then made it through. This might be really poorly described, but does that or have other experiences given you a sense of competitiveness? I definitely can remember competitive feelings weirdly between myself and myself, like whether I was Shane or Courtney. There's been certain times I remember where not a – good friend, but like a second or third tier friend. Out of ring. Yeah, out of ring, being like, oh, we're having a housewarming on Saturday. Do you want to come? And I was like, oh, yeah, cool. I'm like, but can you come as Courtney? Oh. And I was just like, oh. I remember that being a bit of an icky feeling yeah. when I was younger, like wondering, oh, am I not as valuable or as wanted or as desired as Shane? And now it's interesting because I love – the sequins and the glamour and the hair and the wigs and all of that stuff. And I also, I think I know my worth now. So I'm like, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Or yeah, actually I want to go to that party and drag or, but it's on my terms. And even I must say like this morning I was on ABC Breakfast as Shane and I was like, how lovely. Because there was a time a few years ago where I did drag for everything yeah? because that's kind of what was expected, but it's nice now. Also I'm promoting like my memoir caught in the act and it's more than just about being in drag. I was like, oh, it's so nice to just wake up like an hour before you have to be there, brush your teeth, have a shower and turn up in boys' clothes for what is a lovely but, you know, five-minute interview. To spend three hours getting into drag for a five-minute interview is always heartbreaking. What a waste. What a waste. It's a nice career revolution I'm going through. So I want to ask about your memoir because Mm -hmm. writing a memoir requires not only an examination of your own life and your own feelings but an editing of your own life, right? You you know, you can't write it all down. Mm. You're choosing what to include that tells a story or paints a portrait of you. And when I think of you, I think of so many of the television shows I've watched you on, all of which you've been edited by someone else, you Mm. know, like the Big Brother editors and the Drag Race editors or the Idol editors, they're doing their version of the two-dimensional Shane or Courtney they want to portray. What was it like editing yourself? It was really lovely because when I was writing the book, I was talking about Drag Race actually and the, the reality TV process and how it's someone else's version of you and how many, many hours are reduced to you know, 42 minutes or whatever. And obviously this book is 39 years reduced to 100,000 words, but the difference is that it's my choice and 
the stories that I get to tell and the specific parts. I focused on gender and sexuality and identity and the TV moments like Idol and Drag Race and Big Brother all sort of have featured moments. And there are a lot of stories that I wrote that didn't make it in. I wrote about 220,000 words, Ooh, which wow. is like bigger than Obama's book basically for a visual reference. I was like, can't we include it all? And like, no, this is how big 220,000 words is. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we definitely need to cut it down. That's just ridiculous. Obama's book, not to compare my book to Obama's book. I was reading it and I was like, oh, okay, well, they're back in the war room or the situation room and there's another war going on and they're, this, and they're all like important historic events. But I kind of just wanted one of those. And Let's like, make this a bit more, pacier. Yeah, tell me more about Michelle and the kids. But in mine I was like, okay, well, I've kind of told a story about this. I don't need that story. But it was really empowering getting to just write all of those stories, even if they never made it in the book. Mm. And a weird part is, is that other 120,000 words that didn't make it in were so important to write. I remember at first feeling like a sense of loss because I was like, oh my God, I spent months writing this and it's never going to get used. But actually writing it all was part of writing the 100,000. And that was really interesting because you kind of do a lot of healing when you write a book. You're writing about all of these memories in long form and you're trying to describe the detail and you really go back and immerse yourself in them. You know, I've heard about people talking about journaling and stuff like that, which I've never really done. And now I get it. Who are you thinking about when you write? Who are you thinking is going to read it? Like who are you writing for? Well, it's funny because I opened the book with a dedication like to my 14-year-old self for all the 14-year-olds out there. But also if you're 14, you probably shouldn't be reading my book (laughs) because there's some racy sex stories, there's stories of drug use and all sorts of stuff like that. But I'm always thinking about me, but me at 14 and me at 14 who represents almost all of the me's at 14, Mm. I guess. And one of the themes in the book is, something like that came from therapy where my therapist would say like, oh, and what would you say to that 14-year-old child? And I was like, I don't know. Like I never got the question when I was sitting in the therapist's office, but when I was writing this book, I remember breaking down. I was like rocking back and forth without even like consciously. I was like, I'm sorry, I wasn't there to protect you. And I was like, oh, that's what he means. That's what he means by what would you say? And I was just like hugging this imaginary 14-year-old me and it was such a cathartic and healing moment to actually do that as an adult, to go back and connect in some weird like psychological time travel way with that 14-year-old me. I want to ask about that 14-year-old then. Can you tell us about what they were like? (sighs) Kind of confused because I went to like Sanget District State High School. 14 was like the time where I was like a library monitor, didn't really know how to fit in, wasn't like the other boys. But I also was going to a place called the Fame Talent Agency and Theatre Company, which is like a singing and dancing acting school once a week. And in the holidays I was performing in pantomimes and that was a real place of sanctuary where I could just be myself and didn't Mm. have to like worry about bullying or anything like that. But then at school I felt like I had to kind of conform, but I didn't really do a very good job of that. Then the Spice Girls came along and they were my life preserver thrown out into the ocean of suburbia in the mid-90s that pulled me into shore. And I got these four-inch buffalo boots. Oh, amazing. um, 
that I would wear to school. I had a wheelie bag like that I would wheel behind like me. Like an air of a hostess? Backpack. Like an air hostess. Nice. A backpack was so heavy and I was so frail and delicate <laughs> and I was doing like biology, chemistry, physics, maths B. Oh, that was grade 11, maths B, maths C. I had all oh, these had giant big books. big books and we didn't have lockers and I was like, that. I'm just going to wheel a wheelie bag behind me. I had like a Woody Woodpecker hat. I had headgear with braces. And on the back of my senior jersey in grade 12, I had Spice Boy 99. So I was like trapped between like what I was supposed to be and like who I was. I was irrepressible, I think. I just decided to give up on trying to conform and just stood out instead. And I think in a weird way, maybe a lot of those physical things were things I had control over. So if people would make fun of me, I was like, yeah, I know. I'm wearing a Spice Boy 99 jersey. Mm. I did that as opposed to them picking on something that was more inherent perhaps. So it was a bit confusing. But looking back, writing the book, I was actually really proud of my 14 to 16-year-old self for things like that Spice Boy 99 jersey and wearing those buffalo boots to school. I was like, yeah, good on you. Yeah, that's gutsy. I have a friend in LA who was telling me about him being a flaming homosexual in school and I was like, oh, I wish I'd been more like that. And then I was like, wait a minute, I think I I was. was. (laughs) I just didn't realise. Let's talk about Drag Race because I can't stand not asking any longer. You competed on that show when it was at the peak of its influence. The show was very much a known entity, unlike Idol, when you went on it because it was a first season. So what was your perception of going on Drag Race and what were you hoping to achieve? And then how did it stack up? I loved watching Drag Race. I'd watched every episode of it. On Idol... Didn't know what reality TV was. And Mm. also Idol wasn't all that produced. Pretty much what you saw on TV, wait, maybe they were even live shows now that I've said that. Obviously the auditions weren't live, but then once it got to those weekly shows, they were live. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, so it wasn't like someone spent ages cutting things up. What you saw is what you got. But Drag Race, I guess I went into it with a bit of a naivety thinking that how I acted would be what would happen on TV. I thought that everybody that I'd seen on Drag Race was exactly that person in real life and that was a totally true representation of their experience. I guess like documentary. Yeah. I thought that it was more like documentary. And so to be there, it was so much fun and I knew that millions of people around the world would watch what we were doing on every runway and in every maxi and mini challenge. And so that was thrilling. I made amazing friends and adore Bianca and Darian and all of the girls. And then when it started going to air, it started off like the first episode. I was like, oh, this is so cute. And then the second episode, still cute. And then it was around middle of the way through, I noticed like the tide turning, I guess. And then toward the end, I felt that the person who was on the television maybe represented 20% of my experience but was telling 100% of my story. And it felt like that became imbalanced. Like it was just really uh, challenging to see this really, really zoomed in 
version of things that I had said but with different contexts, with different reactions from other people, with sound effects and music underneath that made things seem a lot probably more harsh, more cold, more sinister. And interestingly as well, in American pop culture, anybody with an Australian accent or a British accent, which to them is kind of the same thing, they're often portrayed as villains. If you think of Scar in The Lion King or you think of Simon Cowell or you think of any of these, Mm. um, there's lots of better examples than Scar from The Lion King. I don't know why he came to mind. But they've always got like a British accent or Australian accent or some sort of accent. And so Americans can often hear those accents historically as being like, villains or evil and then I'm like the pretty blonde girl if I do say so myself and in that room of 14 people when I'm on a show like Dancing the Stars or Big Brother I'm the most extreme person in the room but on a show like Drag Race I'm the most boring person in the room so it was interesting to see how it all played out and to observe it and to write about it in the book and to kind of I guess like resolve my feelings which is nice. Compare that experience for me then with going on to Big Brother where, again, that kind of flip of, as you say, the extreme person in the room happens. Mm. And obviously you go on to win Big Brother UK. So there's this enormous groundswell of support and adoration for you. But the snippets that I watched looked like you had a pretty tough time. Like you had to have some pretty rough conversations. In that house. Yeah. I don't know. I don't find those conversations like hard to have. There was a lot of explaining stuff to other people, but like it's not my everyday experience to have to be explaining the nuances of gender identity or the difference between drag and trans identity or, you know, marriage equality and those sorts of things to just people that I come across. So in that instance, I was aware that there was a nation watching. Yeah. And that this was actually a really cool opportunity to have some conversations where I explained details about queer identity to people. And even beyond that, there was a lot of times where it was meant to, it was Celebrity Big Brother Year of the Woman. And none of the women in the house would call themselves feminists. Mm. Um, and I was like, oh gosh, this seems like a slightly imbalanced representation for Year of the Woman. And one of the women in there, Anne Whittacombe, a very conservative politician um, who, you know, most recently was elected to the far-right Brexit party with Nigel Farage in the UK. Uh, But she was a, you know, a Tory politician for 23 years. She voted against every single piece of pro-LGBT legislation whoever came before her. Her and I had a lot of conversations. And there was times when... There would be talks of like the Me Too movement, for example, and described it as, oh, just all these snowflakes and, you know, people overreacting and all of this. And I'm sitting there at a table with like a bunch of women and I was like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and wait for someone to retort to Anne like it's not my place. I'll allow someone to speak for their own experience. And then everyone sort of like didn't agree with her but bowed down to her dominance. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God, this is awkward. I'm like, ah, uh, I don't think you can just call someone coming forward about being sexually harassed in the workplace snowflakery. Yeah, it was just interesting to see that she didn't have that ability to, to have understanding or compassion for 
people, other women, with what they were saying in their stories. Hearing you say that, it sounds so ordinary, right? It sounds like a group of housemates chatting and politics yeah. comes up occasionally. But I think yeah, the yeah. fact that there were so many people watching you, not just in the UK but around the world, you gave voice to, I think, so many of us who have sat at a Christmas table with extended family and gone, oh, I want to say something but I feel yeah. like I can't. I think it was appreciated by a lot of people who feel like they can't stand up to the people around them sometimes. And you know what's interesting is that our first, Anne and my first conversation about marriage equality, as you call it, <laughs> we finished that conversation and she was like, oh, she's like, thank you for that. She said, normally someone would have called me a homophobe and stormed out or thrown mm. something. And she said, oh, that was quite lovely to just have a tempered conversation about that issue. And yeah, it was really interesting how that played out. And in, in the end, it ended up Anne and I being on the couch together in the final yeah. and then me winning Year of the Woman, which was ironic, but I did think once it came down to Anne and I, I didn't think I was going to win or rather that I should win because it was Year of the Woman. But ultimately I was like, oh, this is a big call, but I just, Anne is against, you know, the women's right to choose what happens to her body, against climate change, pro-capital punishment, all of these things. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I feel like I have to win now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I vote for me. Yeah. You've been back in Australia for a little while now. Yeah. I imagine partly just because of the pandemic means moving between LA, London and Sydney gets rather tricky. It does. What's it been like being back watching the politics play out? How does Australian politics stack up against the UK and the US? What defines us? It's funny because hearing people talk about and dissect the government's handling of stuff, like, look, there are certainly players who did not contribute and, you know, I'd say Scott Morrison at the top got lucky with the people who were the premiers around the country who handled the pandemic really well as best they could. And although there were faults along the way and there are things that we could pick on, when you look at basically every other country in the world mm. apart from New Zealand, Australia really nailed it. Like the number of deaths was so low. Yes, we did end up having lockdowns towards the end and whatever and now we're one of the most vaccinated countries in the world and we were so far behind and there's ups and downs and things like that. But watching the politics is interesting. We thankfully don't have as huge divide in Australia as they do in the US when it comes to the left and the right of politics. And I know that we often like to look to the US for inspiration and I just don't think we should anymore. I think... Australia needs to use its own critical thinking to do what's best for Australia and really denounce speaking Australian politics with an American accent because it's so divisive and it doesn't help anybody. I think we realise now that there is something more important than getting attention and that is the greater good of our country and of the people of our country and... Yeah, that outrageous sort of stuff. I mean, look, there's still extreme people on both sides of the aisle, but I think we do need to take extreme action when it comes to things like climate change and, you know, women's rights and First Nations rights and all of that sort of stuff. But I think we have to do it with a moderate conversation. 
Well, Shane, thank you so much for this conversation today. I have so enjoyed it. It's been an absolute treat and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. That's it for my conversation with Shane Jenick. You can buy his memoir, Caught in the Act, a memoir by Courtney Act, at all the good bookstores. Don't worry about the bad ones. Stick around because The Weekend List is up next. Linda Mariano is here from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club for the weekend briefing, moving into the weekend list. We're going to tell you what to see, do, watch, look, read, listen to. But first things first, Linda, how's your week been? I have been feeling really good. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's slightly coming out of lockdown. I'm feeling really calm. I'm able to see people again, which is really nice. I tried to cut down on coffee, but then I just thought, you know what, Jam? Bring it back in. I need to just be up in my caffeine. How else am I going to have coffee social dates? You know what? I pretty much quit the coffee during lockdown. And as we've been coming out, I've just been diving back in, like head first, bathing in the frothy goodness. Honestly, cafe culture, the nothing beats it. <laughs> you can't go out with someone for a tea. You just can't. You can't catch That's up lame. for a tea. I can't pay that amount of money for someone to put a few leaves in a mug. No. I need them to ground beans. I need them to get frothy with it. I have missed the not very fine china of my local cafe. Let's get into what you've been up to, Linda. What have you got to recommend for us this weekend? Oh, there is a record that I have had on repeat. And, you know, sometimes there are these albums that sit perfectly in this pocket of I feel like listening to them when I wake up first thing in the morning, if I'm doing some stretches, maybe lighting some incense, maybe making myself a coffee or when I'm getting home after a long day and I just want something to totally wind down to. And it's the new record from Atlanta artist Summer Walker. It's called Still Over It. Now, this is the follow-up to her debut album, which came out back in 2019. And when that record came out, It became the most streamed album by a female artist since Beyonce's iconic Lemonade. So that kind of gives you an indication as to how much this record really hit it. It is a breakup album. It is an album that, like the debut, has got this perfect slinky sexiness to it that if you tune into the lyrics, She's definitely saying an F you to her ex-partner who is a massive producer who actually produced about half of this new record. No way. But, you know, you look at the track listing and there's songs called like Toxic, Unloyal, Broken Promises, but it is not a dark record. If you just listen to the beats and the way that she sings, it's still so fun. It feels so empowering. You've got artists like Cardi B on here. Ciara's on here, her and her best friend Scissor. That gives you that total vibe that I think we need when you want to be feeling cool and beautiful and confident. I feel like a lot of us are learning how to do those things all over again right now as we emerge from lockdown. So that sounds perfect. Yeah, especially if you need like a little bit of an extra hype up and smoothing of your soul before you head out for town. Well, I've got a recommendation that absolutely will not smooth anyone's soul. In fact, it will make you panic. 
quite a little bit oh, and have, no. a, have a momentary, if not very long-term, existential crisis. I have spent the last few days binging a new podcast by Guardian Australia. It is called Australia versus the Climate. It is a special investigatory podcast. It was made ahead of COP26, the Global Climate Summit. And if I'm starting to sound very dry and very boring, this is anything but. It goes into the background of what led up to this summit, goes right back to Australia negotiating Kyoto back in the year 2001. And it goes and talks to insiders. It talks to prime ministers. It reveals bullying on behalf of Australia. It reveals the late night tactics that happen when they're negotiating those big moments at those COP events. And I came out of listening to these five episodes devastated by Australia's role when it comes to exacerbating climate change, but also denying our responsibility to do something for so long, not just in a kind of a localised sense, which is how I usually think about it, but in a real global sense. We are the leaders of the bad guys, everyone. But I do think this has been happening over such a long stretch of time that it is worth taking a moment to go back because we're talking about negotiations that began sort of 2000, 2001. Like this is 20 plus years ago now. And so for most of us, we're not going to have really clear memories of it. And this podcast breaks it down really simply, really sensibly. All the key players are interviewed and it will help you take really seriously what Australia's role is on a global scale when it comes to climate emissions. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. The treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. Scott Morrison as treasurer holding up a lump of coal in Parliament. It's coal. It was dug up by men and women who work and live in the electorates of those who sit opposite. And that's because this is how Australia is seen around the world. A country in love with coal. Oh, that was heavy, wasn't it? Have you got something less heavy? Heavy but important. I've got one that's very enriching, I think, and it's a show that I seriously binge in one day, in one sitting, wow. on my couch. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. It's Love Life. The new season is out now on Stan. Episodes are rolling out weekly. But if you ever watched the first season, it's basically about modern dating, modern love lives. You know, I love love. I love a story that doesn't feel like trash, but actually has really awesome scripts, funny, but also slightly dramatic, really nuanced characters. And you don't need to have watched the first season. That was my problem was that I went, I don't think I can be bothered watching two seasons, but I want to watch something really good that I can just jump into right now. So the new season is its own standalone story. The main character is played by a guy called William Jackson Harper. He plays Marcus. He's this guy that's in his 30s he's just gotten a divorce and he feels really lost and he's kind of navigating his way through dating in New York as this new single black man wondering who and why he should date and he kind of he's like this really analytical character that thinks about oh should I be dating an African person because that's who my parents really want me to date Mm. but his ex-wife was white and it's really smart and it's really, really funny as well. I love the entire cast and each episode is named after the woman that is his main love interest in that episode and he goes through these kind of 
different, you know, some women are older, there's, you know, these kind of chaotic women, but they're all really three-dimensional characters, which I love about shows like that because there's not a straight-up villain. There's not a, oh, this is wrong and this is right. She's not good for him. He's a really good guy. It's the whole thing is so much about existing in the grey areas of our lives. Like there's nothing that's just setting the rules and then going right or wrong about it, which I just love. And it made me even like question my own relationships in the past. Mm. Oh, what is emotional cheating? What is this? What is that? What about these interactions? Are these conversations really endearing or are they problematic? It's awesome. How's the single life been? I'm on all the apps, swiping up and down, left and right. Do my feet stink? No. Laundry machine's been broken, so I ran out of socks. <laughs> you have completely sold me. I am going to need to binge that this rainy weekend in Melbourne when I am not going out and doing things, everyone, because that is That's something that right. we are now allowed to do. And in that spirit, I want to recommend Loom Melbourne, which is the most epic installation of Van Gogh's art you could imagine. It's happening in Melbourne at the moment, takes the work of Vincent Van Gogh and basically shows them in a 3,000 square metre, 11 metre high digital art gallery. There is no time limit to being in there. There are no set paths. You know how in a gallery you sort of taught to go in a certain order? There's none of that. You figure out where you want to go, how long you want to spend there, and it is this beautiful, immersive, vibrant, vivid, colourful experience. And I think the best bit is it is something you could never, ever get in your own home. And it's just so nice to not be in your own home. You can get your tickets through Ticketmaster, everyone. You do need to book a session because you do spend quite a bit of time in there. For those who I know will ask if it is kid-friendly, absolutely. They also have a really robust COVID safe plan. You will feel safe. You will feel wonderful and I don't know. I just came out feeling really zen. That sounds so perfect. It was a really affirming experience coming out of lockdown. That's all we've got time for on the weekend list today, everyone. Please put your hands together for an enormous virtual applause for Linda from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club. We would love so much if you followed both those guys and us guys because then you can get a bit of culture and a bit of the news. You can find both podcasts on the Listener app now or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave all of us a lovely rating and a review because it makes us feel really good as well as helping other people to find the podcasts. The briefing will be back on Monday morning where the gang will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones from 6am. Listener.